Hello and welcome to another edition of the Cinescape Magazine movie review podcast or whatever. Thingy. <laughs> What's your review? All right. So on my queue for um, for Amazon, I I have a bunch of things and it just depends on what mood I'm going for. It's I think the hardest movie to find to sit down and finally just like start watching is probably horror films because a lot of horror films can be done really bad and not in a good kind of bad way. Just it's, bad. it's just exploiting other things that have already been done to a point where there's nothing, there's no creativity to it at all. Right. So a lot of times I'm just like, ah, I don't want to like, if you go to Tubi, for example, Tubi has literally, and I'm not exaggerating this. Tubi has like, over four or between four and like 10,000 horror films on it. Four and 10,000. Yeah. Well, cause I, I'm, I'm not gonna, ex- I'll, all right. One day when I, when I started just going through Tubi, looking for horror films to watch, I just started scrolling through and each page does like a hundred movies, right. Or something like that. So I scroll, scroll, scroll. I got to like f- over 4,000 movies that I scrolled through before I finally just gave up because it just kept going and it didn't say how many. But the the most popular horror films are always in the first few hundred. But after that, it's obscure shit. Like shit you can't even, you know, like you didn't even know existed. And it, you see that there has been so many horror films that have been created over the last just even 20 years that have taken some concept that's already been done a million times and now they're doing their cheap cheap old version of it and it, it's like oh my god how many movies are there there are more movies just movies with english speaking in it there are more that have been created than you will any of us will be able to watch in an entire lifetime if we even had all the free time in the world to watch as many movies as we wanted to so anyway it's hard to find a decent looking horror film because I'm picky. I, I'm spoiled by the classics, man. And once those and the thing that sucks about the horror genre is a lot of times once something's already been done, a certain gimmick's been done, it's hard to repeat that and stand out. So but there are there are exceptions. I'm not going to get into them. But every once in a while, I will have there is that click. Every once in a while, there's something I'll come across. I'm like, you know what? The hell with it. I read the, uh, I read the synopsis for it. I'm like, I think I'm in a in the mood for something kind of like that. So I come across this one that I've had in my queue for a while called Raccoon Valley. Now, first off, Raccoon Valley immediately makes me think of Resident Evil because of Raccoon City, and I'm a huge Resident Evil fan of the original video games. The movies, not so much. But I still watch them because I'm a zombie guy and yada, yada, yada. But Raccoon Valley grabs my eye. I'm like, OK, you know what? This movie's probably an hour and a half or less. I'll just watch it. Come to find out the movie's only 65 minutes long. <laughs> and by the time you get to the end credits, which is really cool, and I'll explain in a little bit. The end credits is maybe about four minutes. So actually, you're only getting about an hour of movie itself. And it's surprising. But here is what I would give to compare it to raccoon Valley is a combination of the crazies, the remake with Timothy Oliphant and with a dose, with a dose of, of the strangers more than anything else. Okay. So you remember those people that are standing outside your window with the masks on and they don't say nothing, but eventually they sneak into your place, wait till you're not looking. And then they kind of stab you to death. 
That's the strangers. All right. So anyway, that's that. Those are what those are comparable to. Now, a plane bearing biohazardous materials crashes into a town, and a deaf woman has to navigate her way through the aftermath. Okay, part of that already is telling you the crazies, because that's part of the synopsis of the crazies is there's a plane with hazardous materials on it that crashes into like the water supply of this town and everyone who drinks the water ends up getting infected and becoming zombie-like. Okay. And now I read you the synopsis or the summary. Okay. A deaf woman. That's very important in this because on the web page or on the Amazon page, when you're actually watching the movie before you watch the movie, it doesn't say a deaf woman. It says a woman doesn't hear the warnings of a contagious a contagion spreading in their town. A woman ain't here no well. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so, and now I rewatched the beginning just to make sure I didn't miss something because sometimes I might not be paying full attention to dialogue and maybe it was it was explained and I just didn't hear that she's deaf. Okay. No. I rewatched the beginning, which has the guy who's the director of the film. He's playing the brother of the main character. Okay. And her name is never said in the film. Her name, her character's name is just woman. Okay. And she's driving. She has a stoic look on her face the entire film. I don't even think she smiles once. She never says a word because she's also mute, which makes no sense because you find out later on in the film that she was born with hearing and she lost it a few years prior to the film itself. So she's a grown woman. has got to be in like her forties. And so she can speak. She just does not say a single word throughout the entire film. So beginning of the film, her and her brother in the car, she's driving. He's talking the whole time. She's not reacting to what he's saying. So I'm like, what the hell is, why is she so stoic? Okay. And he says to the only thing that he says that might be a clue that she's deaf is he says to her right before he gets out to go into the airport, he goes, don't pretend you didn't see me say that. Now, I did not notice that the first time I watched this. First time I watched this, when he said that, I didn't realize that he, you know, she was reading his lips. Because half the time when he's talking to her, she's not even looking at him. So if she's reading lips and she's deaf, how the hell is she going to know what he's saying to her anyway? So there is an inconsistency. And that's, an oh, man, that's what bugs me about this movie. When you find a movie that actually has some really cool shit that goes along with it, and then... There are just bad writing things that go along with it as well. It ruins the movie. Now, the movie's not ruined for me like it did for some people's reviews on IMDb, but it does hurt the film. But I also have to say this. This is a context kind of movie because this movie is done on an extremely low budget. Only there's there's only like three actors or four actors in the entire film, including the director, okay, the guy did all the editing and visual effects shots on his own computer at home, okay? Which, damn. Except for the airplanes that they show flying through the sky, every other visual effect in the film I thought was real. And it's not. And I'll talk about those in a moment. But this is... There are... The problems with this is that you have to look at this movie as like you would... Like when we do a review for a YouTube fan film. So if you got to look at this as through those eyes, because if you try to watch, like, look at this as some big budget um, zombie movie that you go to the theaters to watch, you're going to be disappointed and you're going to be extremely critical of it. So the best way to view Raccoon Valley is with the eyes of that you're watching a new filmmaker 
low budget fan film type stuff. Okay. You do that. You might be well off because there are some really good things about this movie. Okay. In the hour of film that there is actual of this film, <laughs> film choice in one sentence, is that it covers a, a decent amount of ground. It covers her dropping her brother off at the airport, her going home for a little while, her going to her mom's to have dinner, her coming back home, her, the world falling, you know, the, the town getting evacuated while she's at home, not seeing any of this shit. Her putting her neighbor's car away the next morning because the, the car's just flashing hazard lights outside. Her bringing in a stray cat, posting signs about a missing cat throughout the neighborhood, going through examining, hearing, hearing weird sounds in her garage and stuff. And she has a motion sensor in her house and in her garage that's separated from the house. And so she goes and checks on those things. And then she ends up eventually having to evacuate and trying to get out of the town. And she experiences a few other things at a farm, then goes back home. All that's covered in an hour. It does a really good job of being able to do all that stuff in that short amount of time. Well done. But the main character, she has no emotion. The only thing I could see in the entire film that I see her emote is her eyes get big a few times when she's encountering one of these quote-unquote infected people. Okay? Now, the infected people, and I had to go back and look at this shit because when I watched it, I thought that these people were wearing big white Michael Myers type masks and they're not, or maybe they are. And they're just, the makeup is kind of iffy, but that's what it looks like. It looks like they're wearing like an old man, white mask, rubber white mask. That's like pure white. And, and then they have like maybe drips from their eyes or something. Then you get closer to it and there's a little more detail to it, but from back, but from a distance, it looks like they're wearing masks, like, like it's the strangers or something. So, that kind of throws you off when you're watching the film. Now, her character, she doesn't... There's times where she needs to actually say something out loud. She never once says a goddamn word out loud, which is part of many bad character decisions that you can't forgive, okay? One of the things you can't forgive, and I didn't, and this is one of those things that is so stupid that I didn't even notice it. This is how dumb it was because I didn't put two and two together until I read someone's review of it on IMDb and I went back and I looked at it. I was like, Oh my God, you're right. So there's a scene where I guess the water gets shut off in the town because of course the contamination, right? Anyone who drinks the water in the town gets immediately infected. So she's doing laundry in her laundry room and all of a sudden the washer isn't working. It, it isn't, there's no water coming into it. So first she tests, she tests, um, she tests the faucet doesn't work. And then she goes to the electrical box Okay, the fuse box and starts hitting some fuses and then all of a sudden the water comes back on. Now, I don't know. I, I'm going to take this into account. Maybe there are some places that are run electrically where the water gets pumped into the house. Maybe. But otherwise, no. It was so dumb that I didn't even put two and two together that someone would actually check a, a, an electrical outlet why their water isn't running in the faucets. So when someone pointed out their review, I was like, oh my God, I saw it. I didn't even put two and two together because <laughs> she saw electricity in her house. So anyway, her brother tells her before he gets out of the car to go, you know, to the, into the airport is mom wants you to come over for dinner. Okay. So she ends up going to her mom's for dinner. Her mom talks to her while they're sitting at the dinner table. Sometimes when she's looking at her, sometimes when she's not. And once again, 
don't know what she's saying. You know, don't know that. I don't know she's deaf yet. I still don't know. I'm guessing that she's deaf because of the way she's acting with certain things. But still, the fact that she's not writing anything down, she's not sign languaging, nothing. I'm still like, what the hell is wrong with this woman? Okay. Because the way the mom talks to her, it's almost like she doesn't know she's deaf either. So then, then the daughter leaves the moms and goes back home. Okay. And now she's dealing with being at home. Well, phone service is now out for some weird reason, even though this town has been completely evacuated and now has been completely quarantined. All the roads have been blocked off. She doesn't ever check her phone. She plays with her tablet while she's in bed. She's not watching the television. She doesn't see any of these alerts or anything. And then out of nowhere, she gets an alert in the middle of the night on her phone that the motion um, sensor has been tripped in her garage, which is separated from the house, like I already stated. So she goes out and checks it, doesn't bring a weapon with her, sees that the padlock has been opened and it has a combination code on it, but yet it's opened. So I'm assuming that whoever opened it knows the combination because it's not broken or anything, but it's not, which, so that's not explained at all. She goes in there, doesn't see anybody. She walks back out. And then later she, now she gets a, a, a warning on her phone saying that the motion sensor in the basement has now been tripped. So she goes down to the basement and she finally now, now, okay, what was it? Oh my God. It, it look, this is confusing to me because I'm still trying to figure out shit with like the character decisions in this movie. She's all by herself and she goes down to the basement. Finally, she grabs a gun and this guy in the distance. Now it's creepy. You can barely see a face and it's and it's very white. And like, it's the white mask thing I was telling you about. And in the distance, you can see in the darkness because most of the movie is either filmed during dusk or it's, um, or it's, uh, in the dark. And she's using like one of those, those, uh, fluorescent lights, the lanterns that puts off like a teal kind of light. So it adds to this ambiance and the movie's really good with the sound effects and the ambiance of it all. Like if you can disregard the bullshit, the bad writing and, you know, character that you don't really care about because she doesn't emote anything. You can put that aside. The actual filmmaking of it being creepy and you feel the, just the atmosphere of it all. Excellent. Excellently done. There's a lot of the times the sound effects will go into like how she hears things. So it'll go into where you can only hear bass, you know, like almost like from a distance, uh, like through a pillow or something where you can only feel the vibrations of something going on very effectively done. And then there's a lot of times where she's hearing things that she's experienced from her past because later in the film, I know it's not a very long film, but at a certain point near closer to the end of the film, it does like a quick flashback where she's at the doctor's office and the doctor's checking her ear. And then he says to her, you need to start remembering, you need to start watching home videos and stuff like that and remembering all of these voices and sentences because once they're gone, they're gone. So remember them. Okay. So that's replaying throughout the film. And it's interesting. I don't know if it was important, but it was interesting. It just needed more. The movie needs a lot more character development. It really does. That That's the problem. And there's just other dumb things that happen in the movie. Okay. Finally, the TV, she's able to get power to the TV and get a signal. And she's watching the news, which, you know, 
I don't even know if there were subtitles on the news. So it looked, I mean, it looked like she was watching, she's deaf. She's watching TV without subtitles. Okay. And they're saying that the whole town's been quarantined off or it does have subtitles. My bad. And so, but she decides to get in her car anyway and start to drive out. And then she gets up to these road signs that say, now this is another, I think another problem with the making of this film. The road signs are facing into the town and they're saying no trespassing turn around or you will be shot. Trespassers will be shot. But shouldn't those signs be facing the other way? Because on the news, they even say 90% of the town has been evacuated. That means that there's like 90 people left that are still in the town. Don't know if they're infected or not. Okay. So why wouldn't those be facing people trying to go into the town? And why are there no soldiers or anything posted at these five road exits out of this town? It makes no sense. So she gets to this one roadblock and dude, I didn't even know this. The roadblocks don't even exist. The guy who made the film, he actually used visual effects on his computer to put all the barriers and the road signs and everything there. And he just did the lighting right and everything. I didn't even know. So then when I, um, when I rewatched a couple scenes in the movie and now that I know that they're there, I can see it only because I know it's there. Otherwise I did not notice it. So very well done. Extremely well done. I love it. Respect to that. And, but okay, she starts driving away and she starts to go, I don't know, look for another way out. And so she's driving down another road and she runs out of gas. Okay. She sees the gas light flashing when the car shuts down, but then she spends about another minute of, of movie time trying to start the car. So she's running her fucking battery down. Sorry. She's running her freaking battery down. And she keep in, and even though she knows it's out of gas, so she gets out, she starts walking, and she comes across a farm. She goes in the farm, she finds a gas can, gas can's empty. So she goes further into the farm, and all of a sudden, one of the infected comes in and messes with her, and she ends up killing him. Well done. It was creepy because there's a part where she goes in the house first, and she tries to go downstairs into the basement. And she doesn't, she's like, she gets, she feels a warning sign. She's not, she just doesn't do it. But there's like this silhouette of a guy sitting down there in the darkness, almost in front of a light at a desk, like a, like a tool bench or something. And he doesn't move or anything. And so she just leaves and goes to another part of the farm. Well, she finds another part where there is a, um, like a horse stall area and she finds another gas can. And this, this gas can has gas in it. Well, all of a sudden the guy comes in, she has to, you know, hide from him. Now the guy, she sees the lights turn on in the, in the damn place. Okay. She sees the goddamn lights turn on. She starts to hide in one of the stalls and she doesn't turn off these super bright fluorescent lights from her, her lantern. And I mean, like, that's the first thing you should have done. And she doesn't do it. She doesn't do it until he's already noticed her. And I'm just slapping my head, yelling at my television. Like, what is wrong with you? You know? So, of course, he finds her. And then she sticks her gun at him. And he stares at her for a good 45 seconds. And then he slowly starts walking towards her. And she pops him in the head. And he's dead. And, of course, he also looks like he's wearing this white knockoff Michael Myers type mask. You know, with just, you know, some makeup on it. It it looked weird. It's just certain times it looked like a fake mask and other times it looked like there might be a little detail, facial detail on there, but it's hard to tell. It is. So anyway, she walks all the way back to her car, fills up her car with this gas can, tries to start a car. Her car won't start. It's trying to turn over, but it won't start like, like she didn't put gas in it, right? 
She goes and looks at the gas can, which, by the way, she just threw off into the woods instead of putting it in her trunk in case she needs to get more gas, okay? And (laughs) there's a piece of tape, a long piece of tape on the back of the gas can that says diesel, yet didn't see that sticker that said diesel on it the whole time she's carrying it at all, ever, or didn't even smell the fact that it's diesel. We have both worked at a car dealership And you know, for a fact, diesel stands out big time compared to regular gasoline. You know when you've got diesel. There is no excuse for this shit. There's the smell and there's a sticker on the damn thing that says diesel. And yet she still put it in her car. So then she's like, oh, the hell with it. So she walks all the way back home again and goes back into her house. And (laughs) she goes to bed because she's just like, I guess I'm just stuck in the town until whatever, you know. Like, I don't know why she didn't go, like, just climb over these road blockage signs or anything, even though it says we'll be shot. Still, she's not infected. You know, it, it just it's just kind of dumb. I understand low budget, but whatever. So anyway, she comes downstairs and now there's soldiers down there, three soldiers. And the soldiers don't know she's deaf. There's nothing to indicate at all that they know she's deaf. But yet somehow one of the soldiers starts writing on a piece of paper. Hello. And looks at her. And then she looks at him, puts her gun down, and then the movie pretty much ends. So you know that she's been saved. And then the movie, because look, the movie was written, produced, directed, edited, visual effects, sound effects. All of it were done by a guy named Turner Clay. And his wife, his wife Terry, was is named uh, Chapleski. Okay. Terry Chapleski, um, she apparently has only been in something called Disaster LA, which is a low-budget 2014 zombie movie, and then also something called The Blackwell Ghost, which is also done by her husband. So I don't know what else they could have been in. But Turner Clay did all this stuff by himself, pretty much. There's two pilots at the beginning of the film that are in these CG airplanes, and they're the ones that crash or whatever. And those guys came in as a special favor or something like that. All this is explained during the end credits, which it just shows him editing the visual effects scenes of the movie. And there's scenes where I didn't know that they were CG, like like with the road signs. Now, I already knew the airplanes were CG, but he did a good job with them. He actually did a decent job where it didn't take me too far out of the movie, even though I knew they were fake. But I did know that the airport they drove up to was completely fake. It was... They just had a regular building that they drove up to and he added the, 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 the air tower and everything in the background. And I'm like, damn, he did all that. And he even said production budget, $175, not thousand, just $175. And so it would have been nice to maybe spend a little bit more on certain things, but regardless, you take the context into account of this film, the budget, all that stuff. Can't forgive some shitty character decisions, though. That That's the one thing that is detrimental to this film. But if you can put that shit to the side, this is very atmospheric. And it's impressive. It is impressive to see what can be done with a low budget that can put you in a believable world and scenario. So I do recommend watching Raccoon Valley. But like I said, bring the context with you. That's it. Are you sure? Jesus Christ. Yeah, I was on a roll about the, about the, the inconsistencies with the movie because, like I said, the character, she just does not. I don't even like what was it? The timestamp. 20 minutes into the movie is when she starts putting up signs around the neighborhood of a picture of the cat that she finds. 
and it says, I'm deaf, so you're going to have to uh, ring the doorbell or, or something. I don't remember. But she finally indicates that she's deaf on the paper. And I'm like, okay, now it makes sense. She is deaf. I, 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 I was thinking she was, but nothing told me. And nothing does. So the movie kind of loses points for that, too, because Amazon summary does not say that she's deaf. It just says she doesn't hear the warning signs. Okay. So that's that. I blame the filmmaker for that in a way, because in a way <laughs> I'm trying to be nice because it's don't be nice because, yeah, man, it's still a worthy effort. And I, I do. Like I said, I recommend watching. <laughs> so there's a movie that I, I loved. It came out in 1982. It's called They Call Me Bruce. And it was, it's directed by uh, Elliot Hong. It stars Johnny Yoon. Uh, Margot Hemingway and a bunch of other people that we don't even know. And the film opens with a young boy running to meet his grandfather, who is played by Yoon, who lies dying on his bed. The young boy sadly explains that he could not find the medicine to cure his grandfather's ailment, wondering and wonders what will or who will take care of him after his grandfather dies. His dying grandfather attempts to reassure the young boy and explains he should go to America. He further explains that when he was younger and working as a merchant marine, he met the most beautiful girl in America and tells the young boy that if he goes there, she will take good care of him. As the young boy is asking his grandfather how to find her, he dies and the film fades to black. So quite some time passes. Yoon is now an adult. He's arrived in America. He's been working as a chef catering to some gangsters, which is just terrible. The gangsters who call the man Bruce for his resemblance to the famed martial artist Bruce Lee. He doesn't even look like Bruce Lee. I mean, he could be black. It would be worse. They would call him Mulian or something rude to, you know, to his face. I, I, you know. The gangsters who call the man Bruce for his resemblance to martial artist Bruce Lee um, are having trouble keeping their boss of bosses happy and are coming up with the perfect solution to distributing cocaine to all of their clients throughout the United States. Through a series of misunderstandings, Bruce makes it into the local newspaper as a hero, having thwarted an attempt at robbery at the local market. Bruce's boss, Little Pete, sees the newspaper and quickly devises a plan, putting Bruce in control of moving the cocaine across country using a stooge associated with the drug lords um, as Bruce's limousine chauffeur. He convinces Bruce, who already wants to go to New York City to find the lady his grandfather spoke of, that he should drive to New York, not fly, as flying would rob him of seeing the beautiful countryside. Bruce agrees, and the rest of the movie follows an unknowing Bruce delivering what he thinks to be flower to his associates of gangsters across the country and the interaction he has with people on his trip. All right. I don't even know where to begin with this. Was this loosely remade as Beverly Hills Ninja? I don't even know where to begin with this. I remember watching it. So in 1982, I'm 11 years old. And I remember this coming out, you know, soon thereafter on HBO and watching it on HBO several times. Now, the reason why I watch it is because it's campy. So this is a, in a series of movies that came out in the 80s where it's the martial arts thing. He's like if you watch Cannonball Run, you see Jackie Chan. He's doing, you know, his, his martial arts and it's kind of goofy where it's just like he's he's doing it to defend himself. But he it's it's comedy where, you know, he's he's not, you know, Bruce Lee. He's not looking to fight people. He's not when you watch a Jackie Chan movie, 
in in and in some cases, I mean, like Police Story is a more serious movie. But I'm talking about uh, what was the first one that came out? Ninety five was Rumble in the Bronx. That's it, Rumble in the Bronx. Okay, maybe it was ninety five. Well, actually, that movie came out way before. Yeah, 95. it just was re-edited for you know redubbed or something. Yeah. So when you're watching Rumble in the Bronx, <laughs> Jackie Chan's character is not a kung fu fighter. He's not a fighter, but you know he's he gets into a situation where he has to defend himself and run away, and all these things ensue. It's more. It's more comedy than anything else. Yeah. Well, that's what this is really is. Basically, they just got this guy who is not Jackie Chan, who is supposed... I mean, I'm surprised that they just didn't get Jackie Chan. Maybe they tried to. But the film is not... It's not great. They Call Me Bruce is one of those movies that is just completely racist. It is stupid. It is... It makes no sense... And, you know, I mean, the guy. Okay, so at one point they're having lunch outside. And, of course, they're having spaghetti, right? Because why not? Italians and gangsters and spaghetti. Forget about it. And and, and they keep calling him Bruce. He's like, that's not my name. He's like, but you look like Bruce Lee. Like, he doesn't even look like fucking Bruce Lee. <laughs> I mean, there's no, yeah. there is, other than that bull haircut, there is no resemblance to Bruce Lee at all. I mean, it's just, it's so ridiculously stupid. That's like saying they all look alike, mm. you know, and, and that's, that's just part of the problem with this movie. And then the other, so you have the racist overtone of this this movie in and of itself on top of the racist overtone or undertone. No, it's an overtone and there is no undertone. You have, you have Yoon who is essentially just like a Jackie Chan character who is going through life. Com he's a completely inept at everything he does other than he's a chef. He's completely naive Although he's probably been in the United States for, well, it, it looks like he's been in the United States for 40 years. So who knows how old he is in this movie? But he's he's completely naive. He's inept at everything he does and easily manipulated. Like, I don't, I don't care who you are. When you move from one country to another, you know... You learn, especially, I mean, he's, he's a young boy, so he goes, he goes from China or wherever he's from to America, and all of a sudden, you know, he's an adult, and he's still got the same attitude that he had when he was a child, which is just easily manipulated and, and naive, and he's learned nothing. And that's what's so dumb about this movie. It's just like, oh, I don't, you know, um, I, I work for these guys that I've, I know nothing about, but they carry guns and, and, I mean, come on. It's so stupid. But there's one scene in particular that really, well, there's more than one scene. There's at least one scene in particular that really got me, which was they're having, an, they're having a discussion with their boss. And the boss is, I mean, it's, you hear the James Bond theme going on, and the boss is is angry at these guys for not distributing his cocaine so much. And it's a, like I said, it's supposed to be an over the top parody, but like, it's so bad. It's like Epic movie bad. You know, it's not that bad, but it's like those, the, the recent uh, parody movies that are just awful, you know, disaster movie, Epic movie, this movie, that movie. And they call me Bruce is on par with that. It's just, a lower budget version of these movies. And 
So you have the, the the ultra bad guy who is who's basically Blofeld. So you have this guy that's like Blofeld, but he's got hair and he, he looks like a porn star. You know, he's got the porn mustache. He's got the the uh, the aviator sunglasses on, and he doesn't sound like Lorne Michaels. Yeah, and as everything is going on, so he's he's petting his cat. He gets all angry, and like out of nowhere, like as he's yelling at the at the guys, and this is supposed to be visual. It's I and I don't understand this. Like this is a visual thing where he gets angry at people, but he's talking on the little. 1980s talk box speaker box okay and he reaches into his fish tank and grabs a fish out and it's this tiny fish and all of a sudden it turns into this gigantic fish like and then he eats it he's like i'm gonna kill all you guys and eat you and then he, he eats this fish and as he's eating it you could just it's it's disgusting sounds of him eating and everybody's just sitting there cringing and it doesn't make any sense for him to do that because a that's a visual threat and b it doesn't come across as those guys, like, who gives a shit? Like, so he reaches into his fish tank, like, they know what he's doing, you know? The whole plot for this movie is dumb. And it just doesn't make any sense that, like, they're, obviously they were trying to capitalize on the Bruce Lee name. And as a young kid, I mean, it's got its moments, but I thought it was more action-oriented than I, I thought. And it what really wasn't. And well, Margot Hemingway's in it for for a couple of minutes. There's a whole CIA plot behind it, and most of the film doesn't make any sense in terms of how it really ends up. But what's even worse is so there's a scene where after they had this interview, or not this interview, after they have the talk with the big boss. This is what I was trying to get at, and then they hear they hear like the Bruce Lee. Whoa! you know, going on and they, they get all paranoid. It's just like, Oh my, we're under attack. Like what? Like he's probably been their chef for how long now? And they're not used to that. Yeah. And they also even call them Bruce and they go into the kitchen and they have to hide their guns and he's making noodles. And every time he every time he wraps and, and hits the noodle and he and he does that, so every time it slaps onto the surface, yeah. he makes that wow sound, right? Yeah. And he's just doing his thing. In that moment, I was just like, "Why am I wasting my fucking time watching this movie?" <laughs> okay. And that's the problem with this movie is that, like, generally, I don't get pissed off at movies with racist over or racist undertones. There's usually a reason for it. And there was no reason for it on this one. This this movie is just blatantly bad. Okay, so it wasn't, like, self-defacing or anything like that. It was actually, like, just... What the hell does self-defacing mean? Like, they're making fun of racist people while they're being racist. That would be that would be uh, another word. That I, I know, I, can't, I couldn't think of the word, but... I understand what you're saying. Yeah, uh, yeah you know, it's... it's uh, um, Deprecating. Yeah, self-deprecating. There we go. And no, it's not. It's not self-deprecating. It's it's all these tropes of, you know, what Italians are like, but there, there is no there is no reason or I'm sorry, there is no uh disparaging Italian Americans, you know. They're gangsters, they're they're bad guys. They're well, guidos. at least yeah, guidos. They they eat fucking spaghetti all the time. <laughs> And, you know, and then, but no, I mean, that's, see, 
They're, they're not making fun of Italians yeah. in terms of that. They're mafia they're, stereotype. Yeah, they're, 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 it's a stereotype, but it's they're not. They're trying to actually make it serious, right? Margarita. Yeah. So, and then there's other scenes like they went to a Chinese restaurant, but every waiter knows fucking kung fu. Yeah. Gorlami. And and it's not. I mean, how how. And they're all, it's a CIA front. So it's a Chinese restaurant that's a CIA front. And then, then everybody knows fucking, you know, black belt kung fu. Mm. Like, get the, or karate. Like, get the fuck out of here, you know? There's, <laughs> there are so many problems with this movie. And how it got released as a major motion picture is beyond me. There's the, the, the guy that plays Bruce. Your time's up. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> The guy that plays Bruce is Johnny Yoon. Now, he's a he's a Korean actor. He played in They Call Me Bruce, They Still Call Me Bruce. He was on The Tonight Show. Um, is the third one called Forever Bruce? He was in The Cannonball Run as a TV talk show host. I did not know that. He was in 10 movies, and he did a talk show called The Johnny Yoon Show for KBS. I would assume Korean broadcast system? Uh, it must have been, yeah. From 1989 to 1990, he hosted the Johnny Yoon Show, the first Americanized talk show in Korea, and he had a co-MC. The show was a hit, but only after a year, Yoon decided to leave KBS due to limited freedom of the media. Um, North Korea? <laughs> this movie is awful. So it is not a forgotten gem. No, this is not a forgotten gem, and I wish it was. Um, Have you seen the sequel? Mm, I probably have, but I'm hoping I can watch it at some point. So, I mean, hopefully the only way they could go is up. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. I mean, he was only he was in 10 movies. Obviously, he's not that good. You know, I, I the idea of him doing uh, like Yahoo Serious, the idea of him. Well, Yahoo Serious was huge in fucking Australia. This is completely different. He did 10 movies and then he did a. Well, he did he did ten Hollywood things, but he did a two year talk show which was hugely successful in Korea, but decided to leave. You know, well, you obviously you know the the restrictions that are going to happen in Korea, so you got to play the game or whatever. And look, I'm I'm not I'm not saying that he should have stuck with it, but what I'm saying is that you have an opportunity to kind of do what you want to do with this Korean broadcasting thing, it felt like he got manipulated into. Yeah. It felt like he made this movie just to make this movie, regardless of the script, regardless, you know, to become popular. This is what happens when people are in Hollywood and then they get noticed and then they make bad movies. And Brad Pitt did it, you know? Um, he was in commercials. He was in other, you know, bad TV shows. The Kevin Bacon was in Friday the Thirteenth. Not that that's a bad movie, but he, but everybody that's a huge star right now that's in their fifties and sixties started off doing bad fucking horror movies. Yeah, there was no TikTok or YouTube uh, to get famous off of. Yeah, so you start off doing low budget, low rent movies. Oh yeah, dude. Uh, uh, what was it? Jack Black as a little kid. He was in um, a video game commercial for Pitfall. And when it comes right down to it, is I can't recommend this movie because it's shit. It's it's so it's so bad, and it's not just the racist overtones. It's not. It's it's the entire plot. It's the script. It's the 
it's it's the acting in it it's the it's the stupid tropes it's the it's it's this it's that it's everything so it should be changed to they call me sloppy useless yeah that's what they should have called it <laughs> this movie is useless it's just another bad movie that was made and you know like i said it was part of my childhood and i watched it when i was a kid i'm like oh this is kind of funny and then I watched it as an adult, and now I've wrecked my childhood. All right. So YouTube uh, had their special channel, Red, for a few years. And the only way I would ever consider getting YouTube Red is if they started making a bunch of good, decent quality entertainment, like, say, Netflix, right? Then it might be actually worth my while to subscribe to that shit. Otherwise, I don't, I don't want any part of it. Even when Cobra Kai came out on there... And I was very interested, especially after word of mouth started coming around, especially after what the first season was done. I was interested, but I'm still I'm not going to I'm not going to subscribe to something just for one show. Of course, I technically did that with CBS just so I could watch Picard. (laughs) But forgive me for that one. I really wanted to see what they were going to do with Picard. Netflix has come and saved the day. And what they did was they purchased the Cobra Kai series from YouTube. And they have already produced the third season, which they are not going to release until 2021. But the first two seasons are now available on Netflix. And I watched the first four and a half episodes of this show. And I got to tell you, man, I fucking love it. It is great. Now, there are some elements that make it feel like you're watching a, a Lifetime channel or TBS channel kind of family show. but that's kind of like in between filler scenes. Overall, though, this is a really, really good show that is way better than it has any right to be for it being a kind of a sequel to the original Karate Kid. It's amazing. It, I, I am surprised. So 34 years after the events of the 1984 All-Valley Karate Tournament, a down-and-out Johnny Lawrence seeks redemption by reopening the infamous Cobra Kai Dojo reigniting his rivalry with a now successful Daniel LaRusso. What is really cool about this is that William William Zabka's Johnny, he is pretty much the Miyagi of this show, but he is a alternate dysfunctional Miyagi. He's a loser. He's around 50 years old. He lives in a shitty apartment. His son lives with his ex-girlfriend or wife. And his son wants nothing to do with him. He does like side jobs of like, you know, um, uh, not landscaping, but arch- not architecture, you know, just handyman shit. He does handyman shit. And he drinks all the time and he blames everyone. He's still a dick. He's a dick just like he was when he was a teenager. Okay. Well, while he's driving around town, he keeps seeing billboards of of LaRusso, of Danielson, where he owns his own car dealership, you know, and he's successful and he looks happy and all those things. And his commercials, he's always punching prices down and kicking prices down. And it's, it's hilarious, you know, because it just to see, oh, well, hey, LaRusso's doing great, right? Well, eventually it does cut to Dan, um, Ralph Macchio's character where you see that even though he is successful and he's got a hot wife who's a down to earth cool chick, he's got, a, you know, kids at that, you know, one's in high school, one's just a fat lazy piece of shit who eat overeats and and plays on his computer all day. (laughs) But there is so much worthwhile stuff with this show. And you see that LaRusso has slowly 
lost what Mr. Miyagi had bestowed upon him, which I don't want to give too much away, but just watch the show and you'll see. And it's well done. And the way that William Zabka's character is, is he doesn't sell out and become this instantly good guy. Okay. No, he is a dick. He is unintentionally racist because he's set in his ways. He's sexist. He's kind of like Martin Cove's character as the guy who ran Cobra Kai back in the original movies. He's very cynical of everything. And what happens is there's a kid that lives in his apartments who's being bullied. And it's just like the Miyagi and Danielson thing. He takes him under his wing and he decides to reopen the Cobra Kai dojo. And in the first episode, you see how he's able to reopen the Cobra Kai dojo, which is his father comes up to show, see him, who's played by Ed Asner. Okay. Ed Asner is his dad. He shows up and he says, I'm buying you out of my life. And he gives him a check. And then he goes, I don't, I don't need your money. And he rips with the check and his dad leaves. Right. And that's the last you see of Ed, Ed Asner, at least for the first four and a half episodes. And eventually what happens is when, when Johnny need, realizes he needs to have, you know, keep having money or to do something successful in life. Cause now he, he keeps getting slighted in all these different ways. People keep treating him like shit deservedly. So, because like I said, he is an asshole. The Daniel LaRusso thing takes him over the edge. He keeps seeing the billboard signs and then his car gets wrecked and then his car gets towed to Ralph to Macchio's actual dealership to get worked on. And he's trying to sneak out of there before he, he runs into Daniel's son. And it's just funny. And it's so well done. Everything is believable. The acting is great. The, the, the writing is decent. Like I said, you just put aside some of that family channel type, you know, stuff, put it to the side. Overall, I am loving this show. Like I am, I can't wait to get to the next episode. That's how good this is. Like I don't want, I want to binge this show, and I'm going to keep binging the show. And I'm kind of pissed that Netflix brings out the first two seasons and they don't even have the third one lined up and ready to go yet. Like, goddamn it, how long do I have to wait till twenty, you know, sometime in 2021 for this next season to come on? But what I really like is that it's doing like almost like a flip thing where you got the most of the show focuses on Johnny and you see what he's going through to redeem himself as a human being and as a father and as, as a member of Cobra Kai and trying, and he's learning. He's slowly but surely learning that he needs to change some things. And it's great because a lot of times, you know, it, characters like this now are just getting completely canceled out without giving them a chance to learn and grow and evolve and so it's cool to see this guy just so set in his ways about just his attitudes he's got, you know, that are outdated now. And so I, I recommend the show. It's great. Like I said, it has no business being as good as it is so far, but I am, I am so surprised and happy that it is as entertaining as it is. So, Kubukai. So this one was never released in the United States. A 1998 American superhero film based on the Gen 13 comic book series was published by Buena Vista Pictures under the Touchtone banner and was first screened for the general public by the Wizard World Chicago Convention July 17th through July 19th, 1998. It is directed by and written by Kevin Altieri, who did Batman and all this other stuff. It's produced by Jim Lee, Brandon Choi, J. Scott Campbell, it's based off of the Gen 13 comic by Lee Choi and, Scan and J. Scott Campbell. 
starring Alicia Witt, John Delancey, Flea, Elizabeth Daly, Mark Hamill, Lauren Lane, and Cloris Leachman, of all things. All right. So this is obviously it's a cartoon. It's a movie based off of, and I think they were trying to make it into a series. So they, they released the movie first just to see if it would be worth it. And here's the problem with the movie overall. The, the sound production, the animation, and some of the acting is ridiculous. Like, the animation is very Scooby-Doo-ish. Like, not old school Scooby-Doo and not be cool Scooby-Doo, but, you know, the, the Scooby-Doo movies that have been coming out since the 90s and, and, and more recently, that's very much what it's like. The I don't even know how this got through a lot of the production, you know, the, the QA stuff, but there was a lot of problems in terms of the animation and with, like, facial features. Like, they would become distorted or feature-wise, they weren't aligned. So you would have eyes that were kind of lower on the face than they should have been. Look, it looked like they hired a bunch of kids to make this, this animated movie. And there are some great parts about it. There, I mean, this is obviously very influenced by the Batman Bruce Timm style because Kevin Altieri worked on that on on that series but whoever was in charge of the modeling the now when you're doing animated movies you have to have character sheet models whoever was in charge of the character sheet models look the the faces were all just wrong the eyes were all almond shaped every eye all, everybody's eyes were all the same the mouths were a little bit too big. The hair, the the bodies, everything was there. There was some good. There was some good about it, but there was just a lot of problems with the animation in terms of stilted walking or movements or the acting. And we're going to get into the acting. So when you're listening to this, like I watched this on YouTube, it's available on YouTube. The acting in and of itself. So when you when you're having dialogue like Joe and I talk and you can if if we're in a warehouse, it should echo as in a warehouse. If we're having a dialogue between each other right now, like we normally do, it should sound like a normal dialogue. And in this, Mark Hamill, who plays one of the characters called Threshold, was great in this film. He's always he's great in everything that he does. Pretty much. And. There were times where I would be watching as I'm listening to it and I have my headphones on where out of nowhere there would be an echo for no reason whatsoever. Like he was he was talking to somebody close up and then then it would sound like he was far away in this echo. Like I don't know if if they had to redo all of the dialogue and the person that found this has an alternate track going on or or what. But this happens consistently throughout the entire movie. Like they'll be outside and all of a sudden you hear echoey voices, like the voices that are in like, again, a warehouse or a, a, an open room or whatever. And they're having this dialogue and it sounds like that echoey dialogue. And then you have Flea. Now, Flea is a good actor. The problem with the character that Flea is playing is this character named Grunge. 
Grunge is this teenage dude, and in, in, he's kind of like a surfer dude, but he's not a surfer dude. And the direction for Flea to uh, voice his character was pretend everything is like, dude, and oh my God, dude, dude, I'm so hungry. Like he's always stoned. So pretend he's stoned. He's a, he's a, he's a, a hippie stoner. Okay. Like Shaggy? Yeah, kind of, kind of. Except all he's saying, he's always going, oh, dude. Oh, I'm so hungry. Oh, man, I could always eat. Oh, dude. So sounds like a stereotype. And it was, it was, re- it's bad. It's really bad. And it's not, that's not Flea's fault. It's, it's the director's fault for treating this character like he's just some dipshit. And that, that really bothered me about this whole movie. The script is actually well done, but the best part about this movie, with few exceptions, is the original soundtrack. It's very, very much in terms of John Williams. It's very much right on par with the way that they need to do things. And it's not Danny Elfman. So take take the Batman soundtrack type of thing. But instead of Danny Elfman, you have like a John Williams protege and allow him to just go about his business making music for this cartoon. It's really, really good. The action sequences are pretty good. The acting, like I said, with with few exceptions, there's problems with the recording of the dialogue, but it doesn't suck. It's not. It. I'm. Uh, you know. It's not. There's no real cheesy, cringeworthy moments. The animation, yes, there is. There is cringeworthy moments with the animation in terms of the way that they have the characters set. Like there's a scene, there's this character whose name is Caitlin Fairchild. The whole idea behind it, the Gen 13 is Gen 13 is the name of the project. There was Gen 12, there's Gen 11, there's Gen 10. And her, her parents were part of the Gen 12 project. They were killed and she was rescued by one of the escapees from the Gen, well, not the escapees, but essentially one of the escapees, his name is John Lynch. And... She was sent to live with her uncle, and they recruited her back into this this program. They've been watching her. They found out where she was, and they recruited her right back into the Gen 13 thing instead of going about, you know, trying to hunt her down and capture her. It's just easier that way. And everybody that's been recruited into this program is a child of the previous programs volunteers we'll just call it that and every one of them have latent abilities so that's what they're trying to do they're trying to bring out these abilities so that they manifest and none of the characters that the caitlin roxy and and grunge none of the characters have uh or, or know that they have superpowers know that they are they have latent abilities or anything else like that and like i said the story is really good in terms of the way that they go about telling the story. When you start off watching the movie, it takes the time to build the characters up. Essentially, it's they don't give us Roxy and Grunge. We don't we don't meet those until Caitlin is at the facility. In the first 20 minutes or so of the film, they build up her character. She's she's a student, she's going to university. She she gets a brochure from a guy that's trying to recruit her. He doesn't try to sell her the world. He's just like, hey, you know, we got a new program. 
you know, get out of here. And, and he knows what he's doing because he knows that her entire existence up to this point has been boring. So all he does is just he laces the whole sales shtick with get out of the city, get away from people that you don't want to be around type of thing. And he because he knows that she doesn't like her situation. She's smarter than everybody else. You know, you can challenge yourself. It's like a, the CIA recruitment program, right? You know, you're very smart. We'd love to recruit you. You get paid to train. Simple. And we find out that she's got a roommate that's a complete asshole who comes in and, and like turns off the alarm clock because she doesn't want to be bothered because she came in at three o'clock in the morning after having sex with some random dude. And then when Caitlin goes to school, she is smarter than the teacher at school and shows him up and she's bored. She's always studying. She's a book nerd, right? And she goes back to her dorm room. And again, the roommate is causing problems. You know, give me 15 minutes. You know, do you happen to have any condoms? Blah, blah, blah. Like I said, the story is actually pretty strong. So she decides that, hey, you know what? Forget this. I don't want anything to do with this anymore. It's a pain in the ass. And if I can, if, if, if I get my own place, you know, not my own place, but my own room, you know, to study and do what I want to do, and then maybe this is worth it. So she calls him up, they fly her out to the facility, and that's where we meet Cloris Leachman's character, who basically plays uh, the same character from Young Frankenstein. Warm milk. Yes. It's essentially the same character, but a little bit more, but, but a serious take, you know, like, yeah. That's really what it Little is. Little good Kleinman. Yes, and that's that's the character that she's playing in this in this Gen thirteen role. She's she's basically the steward, you know, the overseer, the chaperone, right? She's the one that that cracks the whip. She's she's the the drill sergeant, if you will. And then you have Mark Hamill as Threshold, which we find out later on that Threshold and Caitlin are are a brother and sister, and all of that backstory is actually told through flashbacks and then you have a character named John Lynch but nobody likes him because he asks too many questions he doesn't like the program that they're doing and he doesn't and and he's and he's fighting he's internally fighting against the upper management as it were to keep the gen program from starting up again because it's too dangerous and that's what he does and then you have a whole bunch of other people. Like I said, my biggest problem with the entire animation is the fact that it's badly animated. The perspectives are wrong. The anatomy of the bodies and the faces, when they're standing there normal, like if they're facing the camera, they look fine. Like for some, like Mark Hamill's character Threshold has this big fucking Rick Hunter haircut type of thing. And it's not Rick Hunter, but he's got this big swooping forward haircut type of thing. Yeah. And every time he turns, you know, it's still got that big swooping haircut. It looks like a shark fin. Yeah. And it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's a dumb design. It's a 1980s, 1990s design that should have never have actually been designed like that. Because as far as characters go, like every amateur artist draws character hair like that. This big forward swooping shark fin, and it, or it looks like a looks like a sickle, right? Like an upside down Nike swoosh. Yeah, an upside down Nike swoosh, exactly. And it's it's just it's just a bad design. It really is a bad design. But did it seem like it was uh, the animation just wasn't finished, like incomplete? No, the animation was complete. 
Yeah, because the first impression I get when I see the poster here on Wikipedia is I, I think of Batman the Animated Series. Right. Like but, she looks like Poison Ivy almost. Yeah, and, and the problem, so as you're looking at the picture, at the uh, poster right here, so you have grunge in the background with his M style hair. So as you look at it, you see how his face is? Yeah. It's, it's off. It's anatomically wrong. They're trying to do a Batman style face, but it's wrong. And then Roxy, who's looking up again, her face is just weird. And then you have Threshold and then you have, I can't remember who that character is. Like, and, and this is one of my biggest problems with this movie is this character that's behind Threshold. So she's got dark hair. Like there were times when she would turn the way that her face was, it, it looked like an olive or, or a watermelon <laughs> with a nose on it. It was just terrible animation. And then you have, okay, so you have this character, Alexa Gardner. See, like... Obviously, you have to have the nipple, but she's in she's in bed. And then, see, that's a pretty decent drawing, except well, for like the like hair. She has a jawbreaker in her mouth. Yeah, exactly. But that's that's the hair right here that's causing that problem. So they didn't even go in and correct that stuff. Here's a uh, a straight on view of the team, and this scene right here that we're looking at is Caitlin. She evolved. Her gene activated, her superpower gene activated, so she's tall and strong. And then you have Grunge, who's always walking around without a shirt on. Then you have Roxy. This is actually not a bad picture, but you see, like, if you're looking at Grunge's face, which I can't stand that name anyway. It's like a cheap Magnola version. Yeah, it's it's bad. It's not good. That's what bad means, not good. Yeah. (laughs) It's, It's just, you know... Like they were rushing through this just to make it, to get it done. Like if you see Caitlin's face right here, it doesn't look good. And it continues on. At least they're consistent. Is that a boning scene down there? Kind of. This is a J. Scott Campbell drawing out the team. That looks pretty good. And this is, this is the animated one. And this is at the end of the movie. So something's lost in translation. (laughs) Absolutely lost in translation. I mean, well, that's just a bad picture, but it looks like more effort was put into the comic than there was into the anim- to the film. See what I mean? Like by the anatomy. Look at this picture. This is a terrible piece of animated cell. The eyes are completely off. Yeah, like the body looks perfectly fine to me, but the head is. Yeah, the face is off. And why is her hand on her hip like that? That doesn't like this shit makes no sense to me with the way that they do things in terms of animation. You know, but the the facial structures of each one of these is, looks like it's done by a fucking amateur. Uh, Lauren Lane, who does this character. See this character right here? That's uh, Iv- uh, Ivana Bayul. Oh, it's not Olive Head? Yeah, Watermelon Head. See, look, it's like the straight on picture. Awesome. See that side picture, picture right there? It's inconsistent. It's completely inconsistent throughout the entire movie. And that's that's what pisses me off about this is that it's like they're trying to do Disney meets Batman and it just none of it's working. I'm really glad that they didn't turn this into an American release. It is it is not good. It is not good enough. And I can't believe that they released it in Europe. It was not good enough to be released whatsoever. And going back to what Joe said about unfinished, it may have been. But the way that they had it all set up is not unfinished. That's the problem is that it was just cheaply fucking made. And you get what you pay for, especially in these 90s movies. Like what if they were rushed to just get a product done and that's this is what you get? It's possible. Uh, it's, it's very possible. 
I, I believe that the um, the movie in and of itself was at best rushed a like 92 percent like this movie. And it's five out of five for media collectibles. I How? How? Because Kevin Altieri was involved? Well, you got to see how many um, actual, you know, likes were done on it. Because 92% could mean... I can't open it up, so I couldn't tell you. It could have been just been plenty of people that just hit a thumbs up, and now all of a sudden it says they like it. Audience score, 26% out of 169 ratings. It's like they took the worst of the 80s animators, and that's what they used to make this movie. This was released Halloween of 2000. It says wide or on DVD. It, it, it is not. It is not available. All right. As far as I know, it's a media collectible, so you can't buy it. And if you can buy it, then... Uh, don't. Yeah. Don't waste your fucking time. Well, it's cool that you brought up animation because uh, there was a quick one I wanted to go over, which was, uh, have you seen The War for Tr- Cybertron on Netflix? Uh, no. All right. It is uh, part of a trilogy. So the first chapter is called Siege, which uh, has six episodes and it's all on Cybertron. And it's done in a cool animation style that's very comic bookish. And it's done by a company called Rooster Teeth, which is kind of weird. But they do a really decent job. Like all the characters, when you get close to them, there's like scratches on them. The the detail on them is very... Reminds me of the toys from the 80s. It's very decently done. The voice acting isn't bad. The guy who does the voice for Optimus Prime sounds similar to Peter Cullen. Now, Peter Cullen, Frank Welker, and one other person from the original series, they had complaints about this show. That because I guess the show hired intentionally non-union voice actors instead of these original voice actors. And you know what? I, I Look, I could, I could see them having a problem with that. I do. But I put that to the side, and I'm just talking about the show itself. It's decently done. It's intriguing. It's well acted. The action is cool. I never got bored watching it, and it kept me wanting to see where it goes. And I, I'm not going to give a full-on review for it, but it each episode is about 24, 25 minutes. So you can go through the whole first season in about two and a half hours. So yeah, it, it, it's a good it's a good watch, man. I, I I recommend it. It's better than than say the the cheap stuff that they had in the '90s, like Beast Wars and stuff like that, which I never cared for. This is actually worth watching, and I I can't wait to see what's going to come on with chapter two and then uh, the final uh, chapter three. So yeah, so there's three production companies: there's Rooster Teeth Studios, Polygon Pictures, and All Spark Animation which is Hasbro's animation department. You have uh, Ultra Magnus, Soundwave, Cog, Impactor, Barricade, Optimus Prime. I've seen, I've seen some of the trailers first, and it doesn't look too, too bad. I think you'll like it. It starts exactly like the original series starts with Yeah, uh, I'm not going to like it. I'm going to tell you right now. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I had to cut you off. I don't, I don't fucking care about this company. I don't fucking care about what Hasbro's done. They... They fucked over Peter Cullen. They fucked over Welker, and they fucked over any of the other people that have done voices on this. And I can't argue with you on that. And it's not the first time that this has happened. So if you're going to go and hire people that are non-union, mm-hmm. then Netflix should not be putting it up on their their site. If you, as a professional movie company, hire non-union, and look, 
I, I, can, I can talk both sides of the union, non-union thing. If you are going to publicly admit that you are not hiring union people to work because it costs too much money, fuck you. Yeah. Fuck everything about you. Yeah, disregard the people who are there to make it what it is. And all of the voice actors that have done I'm not supporting this. I am not going to support Transformers War for Cybertron. I am not going to... uh, I'm not going to buy it. I'm not going to watch it. I don't care. If you're going to use non-union people and these actors sign up, they are not doing their job. They should be boycotting the series. And they should be telling Netflix and Hasbro to hire fucking union people, and these people should also be part of the union. But they're not doing it. And it's the Trey Parker, Matt Stone thing all over again with South Park, blah, 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 blah. I don't... You can fight it all you want, but this is the way Hollywood works, okay? There are some things you just can't fucking burn down right now, and that's one of them. This is how voice voice actors get work. This is how it's supposed to be done. And you guys are going around it and breaking the rules. And then you're putting it up on Netflix and Rooster Teeth is behind it. And all of these people, uh, Hasbro, Rooster Teeth, even fucking Time Warner Media. Are you kidding me? Time Warner's behind this. And they're allowing non-union people to work on uh, on a non-union piece. So Netflix... The series is being well-received by many fans. Uh, Gary Chalk, who is the voice of Optimus Primal in Beast Wars and the voice of Optimus Prime in the Unicron trilogy, is what he stated on uh, uh, Facebook. I watched the first episode of the new Transformers. Everyone try, tries to sound like a tough guy, and as a result, they all have the same pace and delivery. Visually, it's pretty good, but I'm sorry the voices were kind of low energy. And then we have Peter Cullen, who was asked how he felt about other people doing Prime back in March. He specifically mentions the Netflix series when mentioning that it hurts that he isn't the one doing Prime and that it is wrong for the production to be using non-union talent in order to cut costs. You can tell he cares deeply for the character. Now, while it may seem like he's speaking ill of the other voice actors, he his emotional responses are really towards the producers who are using cost-cutting tactics that may hurt actors' welfare in general. Frank Welker also shares how wrong he feels it is for others to be hired when the known voice actors are available and willing to work. I wonder what's worse, being replaced for a big Hollywood star on your, one of your most iconic characters for the live-action movie, or being set aside for a non-union, never-heard-of-voice actor. Yeah, I, I don't get it. I don't know what could be more insulting. I would assume they're both insulting, but which one's worse? <laughs> I can't believe that they're using non-union people for this. And, you know, this is back in March when Peter Collin pointed it out. And that's bullshit. And this is a, like I said, this is done by one of the big fucking uh, movie companies, Time Warner Media. And and for them to do that shows complete... Disrespect. Well, not just disrespect, but uh, just ineptness. Like, oh, well, we're not going to worry about it because it's just a Netflix series. And, you know, it'll be under the radar type of thing. Fuck them. Fuck everything about it. All right. <laughs> all right. Is that all you got? And this is not against. This is not against the actors. Yeah. No. No. This no. is against the producers. So fuck you, Rooster Teeth, for producing this, and fuck Time Warner Media for helping produce this, and fuck Hasbro for 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 even thinking that just because this is a good idea, uh, we should go forward with it. It's not, and it's going to bite them, and I hope it bites them big time. 
And I hope Netflix gets fucking hammered for it too. Okay. Fucking putting out shit. Just just blatant, blatant abuse of the system. I did not know you'd be that passionate about it, but I get it. Yeah. I understand. I, like I said, sometimes like unions, I can, I can care less about the unions. I work for SAG. I know how, I know how it works. But the truth of the matter is, is that you have, you're hiring non-talent, non-union talent to work on a series that's supposed to be union. Yeah. Produced by one of the biggest fucking names out there, Time Warner Media. And they go, they go around everybody's back, and they don't hire the union talent that they should have hired. They don't, they don't do anything. I've already gone through this ad nauseum. There's no point in continuing on with the same rants and raves. But when, when that happens, when you, have, when you have a company that's supposed to be working within the contract that they signed with SAG, goes outside of that contract, I hope they get hammered. I really do. There's no point. I mean, that's not fair. You don't get to revise the rules based on what you think is good or not. You signed a fucking contract. That's all I have to say about that. That's all I have to say about that. Roll out.